Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 122, The Character of a King. We've had a happy few weeks talking about things other than politics. So just to remind you, last time we spoke about politics was the Peasants' Revolt. Which means that we've got to 1381. This week the aim is to cover the following six years or so, as Richard begins to grow up and begins to have an influence on policy and what that tells us about Richard himself. And with the revolting peasants well and truly repressed, the 15-year-old Richard could begin the process of being the king he wanted to be, or at least that had been the plan. But before getting into all of that, let's quickly cover a bit of the European political situation and context. In France, in 1380, a new king had come to the throne, Charles VI. He was only 11, and would be called Charles the Beloved, or Charles the Mad, or Charles le Fou comme un bois de fromage. Given that he was nabat knee height to a grasshopper, until 1388 the government of France was entrusted to Charles's four uncles, the Dukes of Burgundy, Berry, Anjou and Bourbon. French policy was to prosecute the war against England and make peace only if England could be made to adopt French terms. They focused particularly on the fleet and prosecuting the war by sea, and thus throughout the period England felt constantly at threat of attack. For many years, Flanders had been cut off from the alliance that Edward III had enjoyed because of the rule of its Francophile count Louis de Marle. But in 1379, the Gentois were chafing under Louis's rule constantly looking back to their previous independence and glory days, and finally they had rebelled against their count. And by 1382, they'd managed to survive, found themselves another Artevelde, this time Philip, son of Jacob, and they'd defeated Louis and his allies at the Battle of Beverhutsvelde. In fact, Philip Artevelde would later be killed at the Battle of Rusbeck, in 1382, but the threat from Ghent proved a constant distraction to the French, and more than once prevented the French fleet from raiding the English coast, until the rebellion ended in 1385. Finally, the big one, the Great Schism. The papacy in Avignon had become a byword for corruption, and the perception by the leaders of Europe, except the French of course, was that the papacy was now a French puppet. The reputation and prestige of the papacy was, as a result, at an all-time low. And Pope Gregory XI boldly took the papacy back to Rome. 
But when he died in 1378, the Romans reminded everyone that they had their very own brand of corruption and rioted to get themselves an Italian pope and duly got urban. However, after mature reflection and consideration, the cardinals decided they were unhappy with Urban and that he was a bad person to be Pope. So they had a second go and elected a chap who called himself Clement. Which is fine. Obviously, we all make mistakes and it's better to do the right thing. Except, unfortunately, Urban was still around and didn't agree. So Clement took himself off to, guess where? Avignon. Yay! So now we have two rival popes. And from 1378 to 1418 and the resolution of the schism, the name of the papacy was dragged further through the mud in a grand old bun fight that made the shame of the Avignon period look like a cakewalk. It also gave the secular leaders of Europe a cast-iron opportunity to play politics at the expense of the papacy and use each pope's desperation for recognition to extract due advantage. Europe settled down happily into two camps, with France and Spain cheering for Clement in Avignon, and England and Flanders and most of Eastern Europe wearing the urbanist colours. During the period we're covering today, 1381-87, to Richard began to come into his inheritance, and the nature of his character and kingship began to emerge. And as Richard began to assert his independence, he began to gather a group around him of his best, best buddies and mates, the people he trusted. But before we get into that, the first thing in January 1382 was Richard's marriage to Anne of Bohemia, his little scrap of flesh as he apparently described her. She was the daughter of the Holy Roman Emperor and was then 16 years old. It was, by all accounts, a dazzling occasion, with a big tournament arranged at Smithfield in London after her coronation. At that tournament, Henry Bolingbroke, son of John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster, was a leading player, even though he was only 15, in armour decorated with silver spangles in the form of roses. So, something of a glamour boy then. Despite the occasion and glamour, Anne's arrival sparked little interest from the chroniclers, and her character remained very much hidden, which, as we know, is sadly pretty much the norm. But we do know a few things, and can reasonably speculate about others. First off, it's very likely indeed that from Richard's point of view this was a marriage of love as well as politics. There are no affairs or mistresses that we know of and no illegitimate children. And when Anne died in 1394 at the Palace of Sheen, Richard had the whole place torn down and destroyed. What we know of Anne speaks of intelligence and sensitivity. She seems to have acted as an honest broker. To bring peace between arguing magnates, a traditional role of the Queen. She spoke three languages and appears to have shown considerable interest in the use of the Bible in English. So there's not a vast amount to go on, but what we do know speaks of an important relationship that must have coloured Richard's views in ways we can only guess at. In these early years, the war with France continued to dominate discussion in the government, and despite lots of peace talks, it is basically an aggressive strategy until Richard really takes control. The talk of strategy is split between two main approaches, the way of Flanders and the way of Spain. 
and it was the latter that won out initially, the way of Spain. So, Edmund of Langley, Edward III's fifth son, the Earl of Cambridge, later to be the Duke of York, uncle to Richard, was to be its commander. Edmund was sadly to prove not a chip off the old block. Rather than his father's military genius, it turned out that he was more citrus fruit than fruit of war, and he proved to be something of a lemon. Rather than his father's leadership skills, he was to prove something of a weathercock swinging with the direction of the wind. Although it has to be said that the Portuguese campaign of 1381-2 was something of a hospital pass. Here's the idea. England will support little Portugal against its overmighty Castilian neighbour down in the Spanish peninsula. Remember that John of Gaunt is looking to become King of Castile by the right of his wife Costanza. And remember that Castile is a French ally, hence this being the way of Spain in the Hundred Years' War. Well, it all started well enough. Edmund was welcomed enthusiastically by the Portuguese crowds. There was much gratifying waving of flags. And then, nothing, zip, rien. Eventually, the following summer, a Portuguese army did emerge and it advanced out bravely to meet a Castilian army. And it was time to get it on. Or, in fact, as it turns out, it was time not to get it on. In fact, the Portuguese, with the English at their back, were able to cut a nice deal with the Castilians, which is what they duly did. Before long, Edmundo realised that he was surplus to requirements now, and he quietly packed his bags and left. There were no enthusiastic crowds. There was no waving of flags as he went. It's this sort of event that gave the Hundred Years' War a bad name. The following year, it was the turn of the Way of Flanders. The enthusiastic, bloodthirsty and warlike leader was the reverend and gentle Bishop of Norwich, Henry Dispenser, about whom we've heard in The Peasants' Revolt and his treatment of Geoffrey Litster. With enormous enthusiasm in 1383, he led an army over to Calais. He captured the town of Graveline and he marched north. And then, sadly, it all ran into the sand. A French army appeared. The English army disintegrated. Poor old Dispenser returned home and was beaten up good and proper in Parliament and forced to give up the temporalities of the bishopric of Norwich. All of this was not adding sparkle and confidence to the reign of the new king. After all, wasn't this lad supposed to be the son of the unbeatable, most excellent black prince, who defeated armies just by looking in their general direction? Why wasn't he, Richard, at the head of these armies? Now that's upsetting to any red-blooded magnate, but what really gets red-blooded magnates worried is any suggestion they're not going to have a rightful share of goodies in the form of patronage. And there are quite enormous shenanigans over the Mortimer inheritance, the lands of the Earl of March. Basically, Edmund, Earl of March, died in Ireland in December 1381. He left two sons, two daughters. The sons, Roger and Edmund, were seven and five, respectively. These boys, by the way, have a few parts to play in our story because the Mortimer lads had royal blood flowing in their veins. Lionel, Duke of Clarence's second son of Edward III, had a daughter who was called Philippa. 
She married the Edmund Mortimer, who died in 1381. So if anything happened to the offspring of the first son of Edward III, i.e. Richard, son of Edward III's eldest son, Edward the Black Prince, then the Mortimers had a claim, even if submitted through the body of a weak and feeble woman. So I'll come back to that royal inheritance thing in a minute, on the basis that anything related to family is intrinsically complicated and impossible to understand. But back to the inheritance thing. We're talking a wardship situation, of course, for major, major estates. So every Tom, Dick and Harriet beat a path to Richard's door to get a piece of the pie, to get their noses in the trough, whatever your idiom. At which point Richard began to display worrying attributes of the last king they'd all had a problem with, Edward II. I mean, the guy showed no interest whatsoever in rowing, hedging or ditching, which was something of a relief, because that had been really awkward. And in fact, he was proving to be satisfyingly fastidious in the wearing of a regal appearance thing. But he was proving over-loyal to a small group of friends. And a small group of friends who were basically NQOCD. Not quite our class, darling. So in the Mortimer inheritance situation, the experienced and very popular Chancellor of the Realm, Richard Scroop, was faced with a demand from the king to distribute the Mortimer lands to obscure household knights, and worse, to close friends of the king, Simon Burley and Michael de la Poole, for apparently no better reason than they'd been at the king's side for many years. He liked them and, well, they'd asked nicely. Not because they'd done useful service to the crown. Scroop knew that this was political dynamite, so he did what you have to do with teenagers every so often, and he said no. Now go back and get your homework done. Unfortunately, this particular teenager just happened to be the King of England, anointed of God and acclaimed king in the presence of all the nobility and churchmen of the realm. And no wasn't the kind of word he liked, so the 15-year-old sacked his chancellor. Scroop was not a happy bunny. Never, he said, would he serve under Richard again, and out he stalked. By the end of the year, the young whippersnapper had apparently been brought to reason and to understand the error of his ways, in that a proper council of magnates had been appointed to run the Mortimer inheritance distribution. So fine. But meanwhile, the favouritism to a small group of Richard's friends continued. So, we're going to have a few minutes of the dramatis personae of Richard's reign, both for and against, and indeed somewhere in the middle. People do constantly tell me that the name thing is something of a problem, and I've racked my brain to come up with a solution, but I have racked in vain. And I have racked my brain to come up with a solution, but I have racked my brain in vain. All I can think of is a constant repetition of the main names and warning everyone that a blizzard of names is coming up. And I'll try to point out those ones that'll be around for a while. So, in the Richard's Undeserving Friends corner was, first of all, Simon Burley, his tutor. There's no doubt that the relationship between them was close, and that Burley was loyal to the crown. It's also clear that in 1381 he was skint. So, in pretty short order, Richard got him his crock of gold, in the form of a major inheritance in Kent, Trouble is, a bunch of other people had expected this inheritance, including the church. Taking over the inheritance included throwing the canons of St Stephen's Westminster onto the streets. It also involved legal action. Nor was that all, as Vice-Chamberlain, 
barely controlled access to the king. It was likely him filling the lad's head with all that exaggerated nonsense about the king's privileges and regality. And meanwhile Burley was widely disliked, he was considered avaricious, grasping and ambitious. So there we are, give it up, ladies and gentlemen, for Simon Burley. Next up, give a big hand to Michael de la Poole, Chancellor from 1383 and later Earl of Suffolk. His father had been the merchant and financier William de la Poole, whose name we have in fact had in these pages before. Actually, Michael de la Poole's appointment as Chancellor was not particularly controversial. It's more what happened afterwards. Because again, he got lavish grants of lands and titles. He was staunchly loyal to the king, which was all very laudable, but when the balloon went up, it put him in a very vulnerable position. And he also seems to have been utterly convinced on the need for peace with France. This isn't necessarily a bad thing, of course, but at the time, despite a truce between 1384 and 5, the French, and indeed Scots, were feeling particularly aggressive. And as the old adage goes, you don't negotiate with people who don't want to negotiate, otherwise you lose your trousers. Which brings us to Robert de la Vere, the Earl of Oxford. To a degree, Oxford fills the role to Richard that Gaveston had filled to Edward II. There's even the faintest suggestion of a sexual relationship. Oxford had been at Richard's side right from that day back in 1377 when the old king had knighted Richard and a load of young men. Oxford was for a while just another member of the household, but gradually people began to notice that he was closer to the king than any other his closest friend and confidant, and the most lavishly rewarded. While he was close to the king, basically, no one else could get close. He lapped up all the grants of land and wardships. And when they were... And they were always together. I mean, seriously, you needed a blowtorch to get the pair apart. It was most unsettling. OK, so the de Vere family were noble, and they'd been noble for some time, since Henry III's time but they were right at the bottom of the Earl pecking order in Porus Church Mice territory. And now look at them, rolling in it, seriously rolling in it. And not because they deserve it, the guy just hangs around at court eating bonbons. He's not led any glorious expeditions or such like. Tusk. There are other characters in these early days. Thomas Mowbray, the Earl of Nottingham. Henry Bolingbroke. But the ones to try and put in your mind for this week and next are Burley, de la Poole and Oxford. Though hey, Mowbray, he'll be the man for the future. Just remember them all. On the other side of the park, the world of politics is dominated by a few key figures. I'm anxious not to present these as the opposition, because they're not. They're just the main men of the realm and the people most likely to have their noses put out of joint. So first of all, there are Richard's uncles, the sons of Edward III, Thomas of Woodstock and Edmund of Langley. Thomas of Woodstock was a player, forceful, ambitious, headstrong, able to command both respect and fear. He's also unhappy, because unlike Edward III's elder sons, he's really pretty skint. I mean, not skint in that he has to worry about the groceries every week, but skint in not being able to keep up the appearance that a major royal 
ought to be able to keep up. Basically, he didn't have enough land and was dependent on handouts from the Exchequer to keep his ship afloat. Now, I remember all those historical debates of my youth about what impacts history most, personality or the blind economic and social changes that sweep people along helplessly. I don't know the answer, of course, being simply a bloke in a shed, but what I will say is that personality matters in days medieval. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Thomas was made Duke of Lancaster in 1385 by Richard, and we're going to call him Gloucester from now on. But despite his elevation, he remained in the same financial position. It was humiliating, seriously. And worst of all, his family seat was in Essex, and guess whose family seat was just down the road? Yep, you guessed it, Robert de Vere, Earl of Oxford, lapping up riches and honours and lands like there was no tomorrow. So Gloucester was seriously unhappy. The other uncle was Edmund of Langley, who we've just talked about in Portugal not the most significant of men when it comes to troubling the scorer, described by Froissart as indolent, guileless and peaceable. His wife at the time, Isabella of Castile, seems to have found him as dull as ditchwater as well, and as a result had an affair with a bloke who was possibly a little bit too exciting. The king's half-brother, magnate, ne'er-do-well and frankly hard man, John Holland. Let's talk about John Holland. You might throw your mind back to the complicated love life of Joan, fair maid of Kent and wife of the Black Prince, who before hooking up with the Prince had been married to one Thomas Holland, then got married to the Earl of Salisbury while Holland was away, probably thinking he'd croaked. Holland returned, ooh, and via a papal judgment, eventually forced Salisbury's feet out from under Joan's table and got himself reinstalled. Remember all of that? Well, anyway, Holland and Joan had two sons. Thomas and John. Then, of course, Joan went on to marry the Black Prince and have Richard. Hence, John and Thomas are his half-brothers. So, meanwhile, the character of the king is emerging, and it's not entirely good news. He's suspicious, arrogant and touchy. So, let me take you to a Scottish campaign of 1385. Richard and his council had decided that enough was enough and it was time to teach the Gobby Scots a lesson. Interestingly, Richard, perennially short of cash, used the good old traditional feudal levy rather than the raising of a paid army which had become the norm. And as such, this army in 1385 was the last feudal summons in the Middle Ages. Fab fact time. So there they were, 14,000 men going through the normal charade of marching into southern Scotland while the Scots burned everything in their path and retreated. Like so many English invasions of Scotland, Richard would get to Edinburgh, realise the futility of it all, and go back home. There are a couple of interesting incidents in the campaign, though. One is completely irrelevant in the grand scheme of things, but just an insight into the way these men thought. So our John Holland was having something of a spat with Ralph Stafford, a favourite of the king. 
Basically, two grooms in the service of Stafford's father had had an argument with two grooms in Holland's service. The result had been a brawl and the death of both of Holland's men. Now, the ability to defend and further the careers of your own men to be the great man, the reliable patron, was all part of being a magnate. Maintenance, they called it. If you could be pushed around, you lost honour and influence. So Holland was cross. Richard promised that justice would be done, but that really wasn't enough for the hot-tempered Holland. And then on the campaign, Ralph Stafford seems to have said something. Who knows? A smug look. A clever comment. So Holland found Rolf Stafford, drew his sword and ran him through, killing him dead. Holland seems to have realised what he'd done, fled and found sanctuary, and through the good offices of John of Gaunt, he would find himself re-established at court in just a few years' time. Now, I'm not saying all of this is politically significant, but by Eck, it does give an insight into the violence of these relationships. The veneer of civilization was wafer-thin. The other event of the campaign is more politically significant. We've not talked about the biggest name in the political firmament, John of Gaunt. Whether or not you think John was something of a muppet, his loyalty to Richard was unquestionable right through to his death. It was not an unquestioning loyalty, but it was constant and constantly sympathetic. John's motivation in the face of some provocation is interesting. One argument is that he's just a good guy, that his dad had made him promise to look after Richard and he took that promise seriously. But another theory is that it's all about the succession and that if Richard died without heirs, Gaunt's view was that he and his sons were next in line. Now, I know what you're thinking. Hang on a minute, you're thinking it's primogeniture that has come to define succession in England. There's none of that French male chauvinist Salic law thing that excludes women from the succession. So surely, I hear you say, it'll be the Duke of Clarence's descendants who are next in line, since Clarence was John of Gaunt's older brother. So that'll be the Mortimer boys, Roger and Edmund, who are the ones who'd inherit after Richard's death. Well, that's where you'd be wrong. Or at least, you'd have been wrong according to John of Gaunt because he'd tried to get the law changed through Parliament so that the French, we-don't-like-women approach could be implemented here as well. But Parliament had said, no way, Jose. But then Gaunt had gone to Dad, and Dad had sealed a secret document that said, yes, no women. And so Gaunt was back, next in line. So the idea was that Gaunt was loyal because he was looking out for his son, Henry of Bolingbroke, and his potential to become king. The trouble is that Richard was really not the man to appreciate Gaunt's loyalty. He disliked Gaunt's arrogant superiority. He hated having to be deferential to anyone. He was probably also very aware of Gaunt's unpopularity. And despite all the evidence to the contrary, he distrusted the man. And people like Oxford, they played on this. So on the Scottish campaign, there they all were discussing whether to pursue the Scots or not. Gaunt suggested that they do advance, and Richard turned on him. No matter what region you have come to with an army, you have been the ruin of my men because of your bad leadership, your advice, the bad terrain, and because of hunger, thirst, and poverty. Always concerned with your purse, you are unconcerned for me. 
and now it is typical of you to want to force me to cross the Scottish Sea so that I may perish with all my men. But I'm also your man, responded Gaunt, hurt. I see no evidence of it, ground Richard. Another good example was the course celebre of 1384, the strange case of the Carmelite friar John Latimer. One evening, the friar sidled up to Richard and told him that Gaunt was plotting against him. Richard flew off the handle. He knew it. He'd always known it. And he ordered Gaunt executed immediately. The more level heads of those around him tried to get him to calm down. Suddenly the door burst open and in charged Gloucester, who swore a terrible oath that he would attack and kill anyone who intended to accuse his brother John of treason, and no one was accepted, not even the king himself. Maybe his oath was really aimed at Oxford, who was probably behind all of this. But meanwhile the poor old monk, who was clearly as mad as a bag of spanners, was quietly cornered by the explosive John Holland and the super-loyal Simon Burley, and they tortured him to get more information. They broke his legs. They hung him from his hand. They forced him to kneel on a fire. They hung heavy stones from his testicles. They draped a sheet over his face and poured boiling water over it. But he had nothing more to say. While Richard's mother Joan was alive, she played an important part in reconciling Richard and John. So it proved again in the following year, 1385, when another spat blew up at council. The point of discussion was whether or not Richard should lead an expedition to France. Richard gave it out to Gaunt, blaming him for all their woes because he'd failed to organise a permanent priest treaty, yada, yada, yada. Gaunt, proud and sensitive to criticism, stormed out, and his brothers, Gloucester and York, went with him. Now, Richard didn't like anyone, including uncles, who stormed out of his meetings, and who does, to be fair. He was king. The job of non-kings was to be shouted at by kings, and to grovel why they did it. So he and Oxford plotted to murder Gaunt. But before they could do so, Gaunt had fled. And next thing Richard knew, Gaunt had returned, wearing a stout breastplate and bringing a large contingent of armed men. And while Gaunt's men stood guard outside, John harangued his nephew on his shortcomings and swore not to attend him any more. Once again, Joan managed to get them to meet a month later in March and kiss and make up. But later that year, Joan herself died, apparently from a broken heart at having been unable to reconcile Richard and her son John Holland after his murder of Ralph Stafford. Then in 1386, Richard made an announcement. He confirmed the succession. And he confirmed that in the absence of a male heir, it was indeed the Mortimer boys that would be next in line. Now the announcement made little stir at the time. After all, most people had no idea about Edward III's secret document promising descent to Gaunt and the House of Lancaster. But Gaunt knew full well what it was all about. It was aimed at him and his son Bolingbroke. Gaunt knew he had to leave, and Richard was keen to get shot of him. It's easy to blame Richard for his inability to harness rather than repel Gaunt, and it's easy to blame Richard because he is in fact largely to blame. 
But Gorn didn't help himself either. He was a symbol of the old regime, of Edward's glory. His claims to the throne of Castile emphasised his international stature, which picked at Richard as well. He was a big fish in the pool. As the monk of Westminster wrote, other lords went in constant fear of the Duke because of his great power, his admirable judgment and his brilliant mind. And at the same time he made himself very unpopular, arrogant, impulsive and rude, and open to the accusation that he wanted to use national resources to further his own claim to the throne of Castile. And so, in 1386, when he left with his army to press his claim to Castile, Richard gave him his support and hid his relief. But while he might have felt happier, in fact Gaunt's departure left Richard very much weakened. It wasn't just Gaunt who was alienated by Richard's behaviour. Archbishop Courtney had also taken Richard to task over his treatment of Gaunt. In response, Richard had launched a tirade of threats and later the same day had actually drawn his sword to run the Archbishop through before he was stopped by Gloucester. At the Parliament of 1384, it had been Richard Fitzalan, the Earl of Arundel, who gave voice to opposition to Richard's behaviour. You are aware, my lords, that any kingdom in which prudent government is lacking stands in peril of destruction. And the fact is now being illustrated before your eyes since this country, which began to lose its strength long ago through bad management, is now in almost a state of decay. Richard, even at the age of 14, didn't do criticism. White, with rage, he flung back. If you would blame me for this and say it is my fault there is misgovernment in the realm, you lie in your teeth. You can go to the devil. From 1385 to 87, all this began to gain momentum. In 1385, Richard outraged the magnates by raising his uncles in Oxford to dukedoms. Now they were fine with the uncles, of course. And actually, even Oxford might have been born, but Richard specifically invented a new rank, that of Marquis of Ireland, designed to outrank his uncles as dukes. In 1386, at the so-called Wonderful Parliament, men like Arundel had had enough. They needed to teach young Richard a lesson. They picked as their target Michael de la Poole, and the Commons and Lords wrote a letter to Richard telling him they could do no business until de la Poole was gone. Richard refused to remove so much as a kitchen scullion from their job at their request and told them to get on with the rest of the Parliament and haughtily removed himself to his palace at Eltham. But Parliament stood its ground. After the work of Peter de la Mer, Parliament had a new weapon, impeachment. De la Poole was impeached and removed from his office and it was plain as a pikestaff that de la Poole was a proxy for his master Richard. But of course, Richard couldn't be impeached. Richard was livid. At one point he even snarled he would go and get help from his friend the King of France, which drew a veiled reference to the fate of Edward II from the Commons as the last king who tried to do that. The Commons went further. They created a continual council, empowered to enter Richard's household, and manage its expenditure. Despite his fury, Richard was forced to agree, and over the next 12 months his household expenditure was pinned right back. Injustices arising from Richard's favouritism were challenged, so, for example, Simon Burley and Oxford found themselves up in front of commissions, 
with Oxford forced to pay a thousand mark fine. And to make matters worse for Richard, a small modicum of military success accompanied the council's rule. Arundel won a great naval victory at Cadsand, which saved England from a planned French attack and, even better, captured 8,000 tonnes of cheap wine, which flooded the markets of London. Ominously, Richard now proved he was not a complete blithering idiot. He was clearly burning with anger and resentment. But apart from a few signs of resistance, such as some rather questionable appointments to positions, he took himself away from Westminster and the council, going on big tours of the Midlands. Basically, he was waiting for the year to be up. He had the patience to wait, to seem to play the game. But he hadn't forgotten, and he hadn't forgiven. From midsummer of 1387, there's evidence he was making preparations for a showdown when the time was right. Oxford was given massive powers in the northwest around Chester. He spent the time trying to make sure sheriffs sympathetic to the royal cause were appointed. But the big thing he did was convene a panel of judges that met at Shrewsbury and Nottingham. The king asked them a bunch of leading questions designed to uncover if the wonderful parliament had impaired the liberties and prerogatives of the crown. To Richard's delight, and given the framing of the questions, to his total lack of surprise, the judges came back with a judgment that they had indeed been derogatory to the crown. Aha! said Richard. What should he do to the bad people who did this? Why, punish them as traitors, of course! came the convenient reply. Sensing blood, Richard asked about the impeachment of his mate de la Poole. Could a Parliament impeach a Minister of the Crown without the King's consent? he asked. Good Lord, of course not! What a dreadful thought! came the convenient reply. It's an interesting little episode. It's a clever move, in a way. Through this process, Richard and his Chief Justice, Tresillian, were trying to redefine a political crisis as a legal one. Judges had been asked by the king for judgments before, but usually about dull stuff like fiscal procedure. This was different, and through it a start was made to the development of constitutional law. The judges on the panel by and large seemed to have been open enough in their answers, and they had been reassured that the results would be kept secret. One of them, Judge Bilnap, wasn't fooled. Forced against his will to sign, he declared, Now I need only a hurdle, a horse and a rope to bear me to the death that I deserve. And yet, if I had not done, I should have met death at your hands. And he had a point. By November, Gloucester and his allies knew all about this judgment. It could have been Thomas Holland or maybe the Archbishop of Dublin that spilt the beans, but either way, they knew trouble was on its way and that they needed to prepare. Next week, we'll see just how they reacted. As ever, everyone, thanks to everyone for listening. I rarely comment on specific comments that appear, but thanks to Simon for his endorsement of my Middle English reading skills, which were always surprisingly useless at school, so good I've managed to make some progress after the last 30 years. And then Torgrim the Mighty on US iTunes, thanks for your best wishes. It'd be good to know whether the calves you're referring to would be in my fields or just below my knees. And to this week's kind donators, Dina, Simon, Philip, James, Richard, Catherine, Brian, thank you so much. 
and for everyone's comments on the History of England website and Facebook, thank you all. Good luck everyone and have a great week.